Welcome back to New Books in Native American Studies. I'm Andrew Epstein, and thanks for listening to this podcast for the New Books Network. Each episode, we pick a newly published work in Native American and Indigenous Studies and spend the hour speaking with the author. Few years in U.S. history call to mind such immediate stock images as 1776. Powdered wigs, founding fathers, redcoats. And if we're asked to place this assembly of objects and people, a few cities stand out. Boston, Philadelphia, Williamsburg, maybe. This is the small world conjured by the revolutionary era. The rest of the continent, some 96% of the landmass exclusive of those original 13 colonies that called themselves continental, conceived of as some kind of blank slate, awaiting inevitable expansion. A vantage that my guest calls provincial, yet imperial. Claudio Sant wants to change this. Richard B. Russell, professor of American history at the University of Georgia and co-director of the Center for Virtual History, Sant's new book, West of the Revolution, An Uncommon History of 1776, explores nine American places and the diverse peoples who populated them in that fateful year. From the Aleutian Islands to San Diego, the Florida Gulf Coast to the Saskatchewan River. By illustrating complicated webs of trade and exchange, competing empires, and diverse indigenous responses, Sant makes the compelling case that the stories of people like the Aleuts of the Aleutian Archipelago, Miwoks and Costanoans of Northern California, Creek Indians of the Deep South, and many others deserve our historical attention as fully and richly as musket-bearing Minutemen. I hope you enjoy our discussion. Claudio Sant, welcome to New Books in Native American Studies. Glad to be here. So one of the very first images readers find in the introduction uh, to West of the Revolution is Stahl Steinberg's uh, famous 1976 New Yorker cover, View of the World from Ninth Avenue, a, a play on New Yorker's rather self-centered worldview. You see Ninth uh, Avenue in the foreground and then 10th Avenue and the Hudson River in the middle and, and just in the far distance in the final sort of third of the image the rest of the country, the Pacific Ocean, etc. It's kind of receding out. Uh, how does that painting uh, apply to our conception, both uh, both as scholars and as a general public, uh, when we think about American history in the age of the revolution? Why did you include it in your introduction? Yeah, this is one of my all-time favorite New Yorker covers. And... Um, I think readers, most readers will be familiar with it if they, if it doesn't seem familiar from the, from the description when they see it, it certainly will ring a bell. So I think it perfectly encapsulates uh, how early American historians and, and how the general public has viewed early American history. So, so we focus very intensively on the East Coast during, well, we start earlier, we'll start with Jamestown and the pilgrims and then watch the colonies slowly expand westward. Um, but even by the time of the American Revolution, colonists, British colonists have only the vaguest sense of what's west of the Appalachians. And that, that's true of the general public, too, and their conception and knowledge of America's early history. And, uh, and then historians tend, and the, the, our traditional narrative of, Ameri- of American history tends to just follow the expansion of the United States westward. And so these different parts of the country come online relatively late, in, even within the very short chronological framework of U.S. history. So a place like um, Utah or Wyoming or Missouri. Missouri will pick up a little bit early because of the Missouri Conference. California, we learn almost nothing about until well into the late 19th century. So, um, so by chance, uh, Steinberg, who was simply wanted to show us the self-centered view of New Yorkers and particularly Upper West Siders, mm-hmm. um, at the same time, he encapsulates the view of, of early American historians. So in the, in the books, many diverse characters, um, one of the first is somebody who I think demonstrates that point, and that's, uh, that's Richard Henderson, uh, a North Carolinian who has big plans. Um, 
And it's an interesting place to start um, because I was expecting, I think, uh, the narrative to be framed somewhat along the lines of, uh, you know, facing east from Indian country in, in Daniel Richter's boat, book, um, you know. And as your title suggests, and obviously as what unfolds here, the balance of this book is to the west of the revolution. But here we are at the beginning of the narrative, and Richard Henderson is looking out, uh, you know, from the crest of the Appalachians, dreaming of this big kingdom to come. Why did you want to start there? Henderson is is a is a fascinating character, and I actually wrote a much longer chapter on this episode. It in the book, it's it exists as a kind of prologue mm-hmm. and that's how I intended it. And, um, because I think that Henderson's speculations and I use that word in all of its many meanings, his speculations about the West also, we've inherited those, uh, and early American historians have inherited his perspective. I, I, I think so this, um, vague sense about what's going on in the West in the 1770s. We all know that there was stuff going on out there, and some of us know more than others, and most of us would like to know more but don't, and it wasn't taught to us in grade school, and we didn't get it in college. (laughs) Um, But we have this fascination with it, and um, so I think in some ways it's the the legacy of Henderson's speculations (laughs) Uh, lives on. And I, I wanted to kind of draw this very general connection that um, that I saw. And then there's another reason, too, which is just to, to bring the reader along. I, I wanted to throw them into the West, and I do that in the chapter immediately following the Henderson prologue. But um, I guess this was a gentler introduction, some familiar places and familiar themes, the American Revolution and the British appear there. Uh, But then just to juxtapose, to have this kind of juxtaposition, you move from North Carolina and the American Revolution and the British and patriots, and then all of a sudden, the the next page, we are in the furthest west we can be in North America, which is the Aleutian Islands. Mm And I want to get get to the Lucian Islands in a moment. Um, but I want to just one of the best phrasings in this book comes in that prologue, and you call Henderson um, provincial yet imperial, uh, and you suggest that 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 could perhaps even describe uh, American behavior in the centuries to come. But um, what did you what do you mean by provincial yet imperial? He, like so many other British colonists, just has this. Has a grandiose ambitions. He, in particular, he himself wants to carve out this empire west of the Appalachians. It's most of present-day Kentucky and a, and a part of Tennessee. This huge swath of land. He sets himself up as uh, as a kind of monarch, really. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so incredibly ambitious. A few qualms about running the Cherokees off or any other native person off his or her land. Um, But then incredibly parochial at the same time, right? With a very little, he, he certainly knows the Carolina backcountry Well, he, he was born in Virginia, but then moved down as a child to Hillsboro, North Carolina and spent his, really his entire life there. And, and then, travels a hundred miles further west and and hatches this plan. So, um, mm. but even today, so many of us are parochial, I think, and, and the way we we imagine North America and even, of course, the U.S. in the broader world, and that's something we all need to fight against. Mm. So this is a book that explores, in your words, nine American places, um, and from the Aleutian Islands to Creek country in, in, the, in the Deep South. But you write so compellingly, of course, here that on the balance, at least in 1776, these really are native places um, in so many ways. Uh, and while colonists like Richard Henderson uh, dreamed about a future uh, without native people, perhaps, or at least ones in which they were um, subservient to uh, European interests, um, that's still in many of the places you explore 
a, a distant future in 1776. So I'm wondering why, why do you call these nine American places? Right. And that's a, that's a great question. And, and so this, this is uh, a question that has arisen when historians discuss among themselves whether or not early American history should focus on the colonies that later formed the United States and then in, and then in sequence follow those states as they expand westward or whether it should cover the entire continent. And one argument for... One argue, argument against covering the entire continent is that indeed these they weren't American places, not until the United States took them over. Mm-hmm. And and there's some truth to that. Uh, there's no doubt. But on the other hand, uh, Iroquois or Cherokee country or the Aleutians, there there is no university dedicated to the to the Aleut nation. They don't have the resources don't exist. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think uh, in very in a very practical sense, if we're going to write early American history, we need to uncover the history of the places um, that the United States took over. And if, and if it's not done with the institutions that exist in the United States, it's not going to be done because the institutions don't exist. As they say, Iroquois doesn't have its own university and its own active history department with people working in archives. And, um, so there's a very practical reason, I think, that, that we need to do it as American historians. Mm. Uh, it's also just the case that we are interested, and I say we, everyone living in the United States and North America, we're interested in the history of the places we live in today. And a lot of us, and again, I mean to include everyone, Native, non-Native, and um, Asian, African descent, whoever, mm-hmm. uh, you might be as an American, we're interested in the history of these places. And so... And that way, they are they are also American places that we want to know about. So let's let's dive into some of these places. And um, as you say, you take us um, abruptly and, and perhaps even disorientingly, at least in the in the moment, from Richard Henderson and, and what is on the edges of our familiar early American world in the North Carolina backcountry. Um, to as far away as uh, the plains of Mongolia, to the dusty settlement, as you call it, of, uh, and I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, Kayakta. Kiakta, right. Kiakta, Kiakta. So um, in 1775, uh, seven, I believe, Aleutian people are headed to Kiakta. What, why are they going to Kiakta? Why take us here in a book about 1776 in North America? Yeah, this was one of the most, I, I think, exciting discoveries for me when I was writing this book. And that's that this tiny little town on the border of, today it's on the border of Russia and Mongolia, Kyakta, in the 18th century was this uh, gateway for trade between China and Russia. And this was because of its 1727 treaty. There were two little towns um, through which all trade between these two great empires had to pass. One of the one of these towns was even more remote and never really attracted much commerce. But Kyakta just became the center of international trade, and as a result, uh, otter skins that were harvested in the Aleutian Islands and the waters off the Aleutian Islands were shipped across the North Pacific to Ahotsk and then overland to the Yakutsk River and then upriver all the way to Lake Baikal and then a little bit further south to this tiny little town, Kyakta, where they were put in warehouses and then eventually traded uh, into the Chinese Empire. These were furs. They're extraordinarily lustrous. I think they're denser than any other mammal fur on Earth. And for that reason, they were preferred by uh, Chinese royalty. So they eventually made their, these pelts made their way to the Chinese court and then lined the robes of the royalty there. Uh, At the very same time, beaver pelts were shipped from 
from the Great Plains and the Canadian prairies to Hudson's Bay, and then overseas to London. And then in the 1770s, about 30,000 of those furs a year, I believe, were re-exported to Archangelsk and the White Sea or to St. Petersburg. They were then um, put on sleds and carted across Russia, across Siberia to the same little dusty town, Yakta, and put in the same warehouses as the sea otters. So it's just this extraordinary example of global trade in the 18th century where you have these these two New World North American products traveling in, in opposite directions around the world and then converging in the same location. You have a, a pretty remarkable map uh, in this chapter that, that shows that. Um you know, this this expansive circumpolar trade connecting Alaska and Kiakta to Europe and eastern North America and back to Russia. Um, and it's remarkable not only in, in what you're describing about um, the extent of this global trade, but also in, in how you visualize it. I don't think I've ever seen a map kind of looking over the North Pole like that. Um, and there are many maps that are, are quite remarkable in these pages. Um, and of course, the interactive ones that um, that are also on the Center for Virtual History's website and, and the map that you released uh, in conjunction with this book made its way around the Internet. And so I wanted to take this opportunity now to actually ask you about um, the mapping that you do in this chapter and throughout the book and, and why you decided to make it such a central part of this project. I, I just I love maps and it, it helps me understand what I'm writing about. It helps me visualize it. And I made a lot more maps that actually didn't make it into this book. In many cases, I'll, I'll take data that I'm working on, and if I can plot it, I will. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes I see spatial relationships that I wouldn't otherwise have noticed. Other times I don't see anything, and it's a complete waste of time. But that's the nature of research, whether you're plotting it on a map or on a piece of paper. So um, I... I um, we, we all know the adage of a picture being worth a thousand words, and it's true. You, you talked about the, some of the projects on the Center for Virtual History, ehistory.org. One of them shows all um, land sessions, Native American land sessions from the birth of the United States 17, from 1776 through the 19th century. And uh, this is there, so there are over a thousand land sessions. These were made by treaty, or some of the land was taken by executive order, some by congressional legislation. Well, so this is a subject I had taught, I've been teaching for 20 years now. Um, but it's, you know, it's one thing to know it intellectually and another thing to see it. It really was extraordinary to me. Even again, I know this story. I know it very well. And, but to, to actually be able to see it over time... And this is an interactive map, so you can actually click through on the timeline and watch the United States seize this land piece by piece. It really is something, it's quite extraordinary. Mm-hmm. So uh, now there's, internet maps have the advantage of being interactive and they can change over time. And that's obviously not the case for maps in, in books, but they, they still nonetheless do have some of the same advantages. Mm. Were you surprised by, I mean, of course, I'll link to the, the map that you're describing on the website and people can look at it. But were you surprised at how um, how much that map took hold? I mean, I don't know what the actual sort of metrics were behind it, but I was seeing friends who I didn't even know thought about history, let alone, you know, the process of U.S. expansion, uh, posting links from Slate or Vox.com to that map. Were you surprised to see that take hold? I was thrilled. I, w- I was surprised and thrilled. Yeah. Yeah. We were getting 1.300 hits a minute at the peak. And um, we've had to date, I believe, about 100,000 unique viewers on that site and from all over the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, all over. We've had people from Burkina Faso and Senegal, um, Burma, I mean, really all, everywhere. So that's that's exciting. You can really reach a vast audience on the internet. Mm, that's really great, um, and yeah, demonstrates an appetite to see these processes. Um, mm-hmm. th- you know, this chapter on 
Aleut people and, and the connections with Russia also um, raised some methodological questions I wanted to ask you. I mean, you're, I remember specifically making a note where you're talking about uh, Ivan uh, Solov, Soloviev, uh, right. his journal. Um, and my first thought was, oh, my God, Claudio must read Russian. He's reading this guy's journal. Um, but uh, in terms of the sources and, and how you assembled all this uh, material and data for such a geographically extensive project, I mean, did you go to Kiakta or, or how did you uh, how did you come a, sort of put together all of these archival res, uh, resources or were you able to do it largely from over the Internet and, and through digital archives? It's a lot easier now than it was even when I was a graduate student in the early 90s. And so a lot of it I was able to piece together. Either I got microfilm, uh, more frequently now you can get digital photographs. And so in the case of, of this first chapter on the Aleutians, I, I was reading, obviously, a lot of secondary literature and looking at some of the published primary documents that have been translated. And there are there's a series of three volumes that I found extraordinarily useful. Mm. But I really needed... Each of these chapters really focuses on a particular person or story. And so I was looking for that person or story. And Soloviev stood out for a number of reasons. And then I started to try to track down documents on Soloviev. Mm. There was a translation of his journal that was published in the late 19th century, and it was a partial translation. I actually didn't discover that until I had gotten the original. Mm -hmm. But the way I did that was through a number of contacts and friends who work in Russian archives, and I got a graduate student who was in Moscow to call up this document, ex extensive, uh, I don't recall offhand, but uh, many, many pages, to photograph it, take high-quality digital photographs, and then email them to me. Mm -hmm. Again, this is something you could not have done even mm -hmm. when I a graduate student in the early 90s yeah. and this happened all this happened quite quickly and then i had these beautiful reproductions of this very rare document and i had someone translate it who had some expertise in 18th century reading 18th century russian mm -hmm. um, and then later i mentioned there 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 had been this late 19th century translation it was a partial translation and 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 what was in, turned out to be really interesting and exciting about that is that for, for many years, uh, some historians, if not most, had dismissed the worst. There were, there were these Aleutian oral histories that report on the brutality of Soloviev, and, and in particular, one of his officers, a man named Piotr Netrubin, who's, who by these Aleut oral histories, according to Aleut oral histories, slaughtered people mm -hmm. by, by the dozens, shot them down in cold blood. And these were dismissed, as, as oral traditions so frequently are, were dismissed as exaggerations and rumors. And one of the uh, key pieces of evidence is that there was no evidence that Natrubin even ever sailed with Soloviev. Uh, but that's because it was a partial translation. So when you see the when you see the complete translation, there is Trubin fe featured prominently. So and that was quite an exciting discovery for me. Hmm. So moving south a bit, um, on the other side of the continent, we're on the west coast still. Uh, from the you know rebellious thirteen colonies, there was another war for independence. Um, that exploded among Spanish missions uh, around San Diego. And um, in brief, tell us tell us about the story. What was the War of Independence that was happening in, in San Diego at this period? So the Spanish founded a mission in a presidio in San Diego in 1769. And, and not surprisingly, they were not welcomed by the local Kumeyaay people. And in 1775, they decided to, the Kumeyaays decided to organize a rebellion, hoping to ex expel these invaders from their lands. And um, so in early November of 1775, thousands of Kumeyaay people descended on, first on the mission and, 
and destroyed it, mm. killing a number of people, and including one of the missionaries, whom they bludgeoned to death and disemboweled. And then the plan was to simultaneously destroy the Presidio, which was located about five miles upriver. And for a number of, of reasons, that attack never occurred. So the Spanish, although they lost the mission, they still had the Presidio there. And then they, they spent the next, really the next year, trying to figure out what happened and rounding up Kumeyaay people, holding them in prison, whipping them, really torturing them to try to, to uncover the origins, figure out who the ringleaders were of this war for independence. And one of the people who, one of the persons who features, is I feature prominently, is a young man named Diego. I won't try to pronounce his Kumyai name, mm-hmm. um, but he's the first person baptized at that mission. Mm-hmm. So he's given the name of the patron saint, Diego, and he is a translator, becomes fluent in Spanish, and the missionaries. Uh, speak very highly of him. And then he, depending on whom you believe, either he believed, turned, either turned traitor in the words of the missionaries, uh, or, as he insisted, remained loyal to the Spanish. Hmm. And, and they, they hold him for months, they whip him, they interrogate him over and over again, and really he ran circles around them. I, I just became a, the more I learned about him, the more I liked him, but just, um, even to this day, you cannot figure out exactly what his role was, and he outsmarts them. He has these quick retorts to their questions. He speaks ambiguously when necessary. And the Spanish never know for sure exactly what his role was in, in, in this war. Mm. I, I was he was a young man, by the way. He was in his early 20s and he died only a few years later. In, in, by then he had been released for prison, but his health was broken. Mm. I, I, was struck, uh, I was struck in reading this chapter um, by the impact that livestock has, you say there are really two things that drive uh, first people to the missions, and then um, I would imagine contributed heavily to the uprising. One of them was was religion and and, um, and conversion, but another one is is the impact of European livestock. And I was reminded actually of your first book, A New Order of Things, where um, if I recall, it, livestock also plays a tremendous role in how uh, Creek society is changing. Um, in a very similar period. Um, and I know it's a, a small point in this chapter, but I'm wondering what was it about um, the introduction of European livestock that proved so damaging uh, to Native people here in San Diego and, and elsewhere? Mm-hmm. They are extraordinarily damaging to the environment. As a lot of historians have pointed out, the, the impact, and especially in a place like San Diego, we think of we think of California as the land of plenty and bounty, and we get all of our, most of our fruit comes from California. A huge percentage of our vegetables come from California today. But in the 18th century, and for Native peoples, this was a quite a difficult environment. And so they had these very sophisticated ways of extracting resources. Um, they didn't farm in the traditional sense, but they had various groves they would return to on a yearly basis, and they knew where they could find a stand of certain kinds of grasses to harvest the seeds, and they they knew um, what time of the year you could find berries and other parts of, of, of their homeland. So, but they don't have a lot of, um, there's not a lot of surplus. So, when you have livestock introduced, cows and, and hogs, they will muddy the rivers. They'll eat the grass seeds. Hogs especially will eat acorns. Um, they destroy the environment that Native peoples depend upon to feed themselves. And, um, and so very soon, Native peoples are literally starving in the areas around these missions. And so you can see it's really these, these 
conversions occur in order of distance from the missions and the presidios, right? The first, the people who live closest to the missions or presidios suffer first, and they're the ones who first end up going to the mission and asking for conversion. And they do that because they're starving. They need food to eat. So moving back uh, north again, um, the chapter you wrote on the um, colonization of San Francisco must have been uh, particularly fun or compelling for you to write um, as you grew up there, after all. Um, what, what did you know about the founding of San Francisco as a kid and, and how much or, or even growing up in high school and college and, and how much of what you found while writing and researching this book um, diverges from the general mythology that exists in San Francisco about its origins. I, <laughs> I, t I talk about this a little bit in the introduction of the book. I mean, I, I knew very little of, about the history of San Francisco. I knew, knew it had been colonized by the Spanish. And I, it's really just that I had other interests at the time. History was certainly not my focus. Mm -hmm. As a kid, and not not in high school either, and even in my first years of college, it wasn't my focus. Uh, so I knew very little. We all had to do our obligatory fourth grade field trip to Point Reyes, where we made acorn mush and ate it, uh, and that was kind of um, that seemed like folklore to me. I mean, it was it was a, an amusing event, but I didn't really know anything about much about the native peoples or or what had happened to them. Aside from that, there didn't seem to be many native peoples around any longer. Um, so, so yeah, it was extraordinarily fun for me to go back and and write about the history of the place I grew up in and and to see just how much this place had been transformed. And again, we know that in the abstract, it's obvious. But when you can say, here's here are the headquarters of Google and Facebook and Apple, and here 250 years ago were these native peoples, and here's how they lived, and here's what the land looked like, that was really fun for me. Yeah. Yeah, there are a couple archaeological sites in Silicon Valley, right? You mentioned some of them uh, in this book that really are revealing in that. There are hundreds of middens on the on the bay shore, circling the entire base. Um, these mounds, uh, they're really, it's, they're refuse, uh, ref, um, garbage mounds. Mm -hmm. So it's oyster shells and various kinds of um, marine vertebrates and invertebrates after eating them you throw away the bones or the shells and so these mounds are all over and when they built the bay bridge they had to destroy one whenever there's a highway or any kind of encroachment they they cut into them most of them have been destroyed mm. at this point have you been uh have you been back to san francisco since i mean i'm sure you did some of the research for this but i'm wondering if you know your relationship to the city at all changes now uh, through the process of writing in uh, this book. I imagine it. I think I imagine the space a little differently. I, when I go back, I, I like to go jogging um, down, um, down the Marina and Fort Point and back. And that is precisely where the first Spanish ship, sailed through, at least the first one that's well-documented, sailed through the Golden Gate in 1775, and Native people stood on the shore and watched it and wondered what was going on. And I think about that moment every time I go out. So I want to uh, skip ahead a little bit um, to the chapter that you write on the discovery of the Black Hills and the birth of the Lakota Nation. Um and I think the word discovery there actually might trip some people up or be surprising because when you speak of discovery, at least in this context, you're not talking about um, white discovery, but you're talking about the arrival of Lakota people at what would become and what remains uh, their most sacred land. Um, so I'm hoping you can take us through that chapter a little bit and, and talk about the framing of it and, and what surprised you about it. This So this chapter... It explores the westward movement of Lakota peoples in the 18th century. These 
we associate them today with the Black Hills, but in the in the early 18th century, in the first half of the 18th century, they were living in western Minnesota. And for a number of various reasons, like all migrations, there are push and pull factors. For, for a number of, of reasons, they end up migrating west and they eventually get to the Missouri River and there they meet these farming peoples, um, Mandans and Arikaras, and and they trade with them. These are wealthy peoples in the 18th century because they they live at the nexus of this transcontinental trade. So they're, they are um, shipping guns that are coming from the Atlantic. They're shipping, trading guns to the West in exchange for horses. I'm sorry, and you mean the Lakota people are, are wealthy in this period? or These agricultural I, I see, I see. Right, the Mandans and the Rikaras. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they're also they're some of the few, again, the Mandans and Rikas are some of the few agricultural peoples in this region, so they have corn to trade with nomadic or semi-nomadic peoples like the Lakotas. And so it's a relatively wealthy region along the Missouri River, and that certainly attracts Lakota peoples, and there are, there are numerous accounts of them raiding these villages, and there's archaeological evidence of Lakotas or perhaps other equestrian peoples burning down and killing the residents of some of these villages. But sometime in the 18th century, they, they cross over the Missouri and, and continue this westward migration, almost certainly in pursuit of bison, who, as we know, existed in huge numbers, and especially west of the Missouri in the short grass region, which is what bison prefer, uh, and most especially in the Black Hills. And so... In the 18th century, and according to one winter count, one of these traditional Lakota histories, in 1775 or 1776, the Lakota discovered the Black Hills. And that's the word, at least as it comes down translated to us, that, that, that they use. They discovered this region. And, um, and the, the Black Hills are extraordinarily fertile as cattle ranchers know today and as bison knew in the 18th century and as the Lakotas found it, it attracts ruminants um, and so the Lakotas later called this place their meat pack mm-hmm. it was um, just this extraordinarily extremely productive resource for them and they eventually settled the region or colonized it, if you want to use that term, and made it their own. It became central to their origin and creation stories. And, and you juxtapose this um, with 1776, obviously being a moment of uh, creation and origin stories for uh, the United States. And, you know, I think that there is a tendency to think, or, or let me ask you this, I wonder if, if there are people who would read the story and say, well, okay, the, you know, the Lakota only came to the Black Hills in 1776. Therefore, you know, their ancestral claim to it is, is not as deep um, as, as might be suggested elsewhere. But, um, but certainly if the United States is to have its origin story in 1776, there's no reason at all why the Lakota nation can't. That's absolutely right. And certainly their claim to the land is better than any claim that the U.S. has to the land. Uh, this question of um, origins, right, this neat symmetry that the Lakotas, that they discovered this place in 1775 or 1776 at the same time as the founding fathers were signing the Declaration of Independence in Philadelphia, it's, um, it may not be an accident mm-hmm. because this is a... these. This winter count was recorded in the late 19th century by uh, a man named American Horse, who um, was reputed by those who knew him to be savvy. And I wouldn't doubt at all that he was quite aware of the symmetry and that he created it. Mm. Uh, Whether or not the Lakotas 
discovered the Black Hills in 1753 or 1775 or one of the surrounding years, we'll never know that. Mm -hmm. Um, So he may have created this imagery and he may have very cleverly used the word discovery too, because he was aware of the origins story of European colonization and conquest in, in the Americas, Mm. beginning with Christopher Columbus's discovery. And in terms of, um, you know, the recognition of the legitimate claim the Lakota people have to the Black Hills, um, that is recognized as uh, in, in U.S. jurisprudence now. I mean, there's this um, sum of money that was going to be paid as a settlement um, for the illegal taking of the land um, that is still remains unclaimed because Lakota people don't want the money so much as uh, as the land itself. Is that right? That's right. That was uh, this is a case that was work, worked its way through the courts for years and years, and, and finally in 1980 was the Supreme Court ruled on it in favor, at least in some sense, in favor of the Lakotas. So yeah, you're right. It is recognized in, in American jurisprudence. And but the settlement was in in dollars, not in land, mm-hmm. as you said. And that money has has sat untouched in a bank account since the settlement. The Lakotas don't want it. It's been it's been accumulating um, um, interest, interest, right, over the years, and it's a, over a billion dollars now. And wow. there it sits untouched. Wow. But again, the Lakotas want the land, right? So the final chapter here um, revisits an, a native people, a native confederacy whose history you've spent a great deal of your professional life thinking about and researching and, and writing about over the course of, of two books in very different ways. And that's that's the Creek people. Um, and yet this is a story of Creek people, I think, unlike ones we would find in your first two books. Um and I'm, I'm wondering, you know, just briefly what this chapter is about and, and whether this was a dimension of the Creek story in the late 18th century that you had, you know, come across in researching your previous books, but had held for a time um, that would that it would fit better or whether this is something you came across quite recently in researching this book. Right, so this chapter discusses the these Creek voyages to Havana, Cuba in beginning in the 1760s and running through the 1770s. And um, the purpose of the voyages is to open up a, a, a trading uh, route with the Spanish because the British had in, in 1763 had taken over Spanish Florida and the Creeks suddenly found themselves surrounded. And they were at the mercy of British policy and British traders, and, and the British could embargo whenever they wanted, and they could, they could raise the prices of, of guns or kettles or, or cloth whenever they felt like it. And, and the Creeks recognized they were a trading people in the, in, in the late 18th century and certainly before, uh, they recognized that this jeopardized their future as a nation. And so they undertook this really extraordinary initiative to reopen trade connections with the Spanish. And and they tried to do that by venturing west to New Orleans, uh, but the British cut off that route. And then they instead decided to go to, to Cuba. And, um, What's even more fascinating about this is that I suspect they knew that there were tremendous opportunities for them in Cuba. They they were visiting for a number of years. There were indigenous peoples from the southeast who were living in Havana, had been, had evacuated with the Spanish in, in the early 1760s. And they surely met these people when they were in Havana, talked to them about what was going on in on this island, and what was going on is that it was transitioning from a from a relatively impoverished Caribbean island to one of the most productive uh, sugar islands in in the world. And they were there right at the transition. So slaves were beginning were being shipped in by the thousands. 
lands that had produced food or, or were used for grazing were being converted to sugarcane production. And so here was an opportunity for the Creeks because they were cattle ranchers by the late 18th century. They had fish, plenty of fish off their coasts. Um, they had deer skins and um, all kinds of other things that they could provide to the sugar island to feed both the growing urban population, but also the slave population as well. I recall actually um, a presentation you gave about this uh, chapter a few years ago, maybe 2010 or 11, at a conference on the Red Atlantic and the University of Georgia. And I remember, um, I remember some about of of incredulity, not disbelief, but but shock in a way that um, that you had Creek people on boats going around the Caribbean in this period. Uh, why why is that so surprising to people? Do you think? Well, in part, it's because a Cherokee friend of mine um, says, he laughs at this story, that they're not a seafaring people. And so at one point, they actually, they asked the captain general in Havana for their own schooner. Mm-hmm. They want to navigate, they want to use to navigate between between Tampa Bay and and Havana. And uh, it's actually a brilliant idea. And they lay out the plan. They say, give us the schooner and we'll pay you back with the profits we make from the trade, which surely they could have done. Uh, but so in part, right, it's just uh, the, these inland people navigating across the Caribbean. But, but more broadly and really more importantly, is that we don't think of Native peoples as, as being... Um, is having a kind of broader conception of what the Atlantic world is and how it functioned and how the economy worked. Mm-hmm. And that's not certainly not the case, certainly not by the, at the end of the 18th century. They know exactly how it's, they, they have as good a sense of it as, as most people living in the, around the Atlantic world. And so I think that's what's most surprising to people. So there are, there are a number of other, uh, stories and places in this book that we weren't able to cover today from Osage country and Ute country and Colorado plateau. And, uh, and, but when you step back and, and think about all of these places that you explore in this book, um, you know, from the Aleutian islands to these Creek communities in the deep South trading with, uh, Havana, are you struck more, would you say by the diversity uh, of the experiences or the similarity of the experiences? Is, Is there more here that ties these stories together or divides them? In the particulars, obviously, there are tremendous differences. But in fact, I think I'm struck more by the similarities. And that's that all of these people, in one way or another, are confronting uh, international trade, which is transforming their communities in ways they they don't fully understand and and can't predict. Um, So there's that. And and then there's also the the environmental changes that we see both in in the Aleutians all the way down the California coast into the the prairies and Great Plains, especially with the beaver trade, uh, cattle grazing in the southeast as well. So I mean, all of these peoples are rest, wrestling with this tremendous change, this turmoil in, in their world and with the multiple effects of long-distance trade and all of the cascading and unpredictable consequences of, of some sort of environmental transformation. Right? What happens when you remove beaver from the environment? Well, um, thousands and thousands of things that have implications for people living in that region. By way of, of coming to a, to a close here soon, I, I want to ask, um, you know, this is a book that uh, is, is also putting forward a vision of how we can understand and teach uh, this period, this, this period of 1776, which so often includes, as you mentioned, only about 4% of what is the landmass of, of North America. So when you, you think about moving forward and how we teach and uh, write about this period, uh, what is your vision and, and where do you think it's headed? Well, it is, it's tremendously important, I think, for students at all level, levels to know the traditional history 
of um, the Constitution, the cause of independence, like the stuff that we all learned in school. I don't think one history should replace the other, but we've done that history for generations. We know the story broadly. We know its outlines. We know how to teach it. We have countless textbooks that recount the same narrative over and over again. So I, I think there's, um, I see the, the profession being transformed and also just the general kind of public understanding of our history being transformed in the coming decades. And in large part, that's going to be driven by demographics because the population is far more diverse than it used to be. And it's also spread out. This is a point that my friend Peter Wood made many years ago. The, the population spread out far more evenly across the continent than it has been at any time since the 18th century. Mm. So when American history and early American history was professionalized in the early 20th century, most Americans, and as people living in the United States, lived in between Washington, D.C. and Boston. And, and the most influential universities and history departments were situated there. And, and that's changing. Mm. So accordingly, I, I think our, our history is going to, to change as well. And I think that's all for the better. I've been speaking with uh, Claudio Sant. Uh, he's the author of West of the Revolution, an uncommon history of 1776. It was just published this summer by W.W. W. Norton. Uh, before I let you go, Claudio, I always like to ask at the end, um, and I know it's a, it's a tremendous relief and achievement to have this book come to publication, but what are you thinking about next? What is your next project? I have a, a few different projects that I've been reading about, uh, thinking about and, and, and reading up on, and I'm not sure any of them are ready to see the light of day. Sure, sure. But, yeah. But can we expect more from the Center for Virtual History in the coming in the coming months and years? Absolutely. I'm trying to right now map the American population, everyone living in North America, native and non-native, free and enslaved from 1500 through 1800. And that's a big and exciting project. And amazingly, it's never been done before. It's something so basic as seeing where people lived and how the population changed over time. We, we, we don't have that available to us. Well, I look forward to that coming out. Uh, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. You've been listening to a discussion with Claudio Sant, author of West of the Revolution, An Uncommon History of 1776, just out from W.W. W. Norton. You can find us on the web at newbooksinnativeamericanstudies.com, where you can listen to all the past podcasts. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and iTunes. For the New Books Network, I'm Andrew Epstein. Thanks for listening.